New Zealand who lost one of his sheep. The sheep's name was Shrek. The sheep had gone missing for about six years, avoiding being sheared by his owner. And during that time, he gained about 60 pounds of wool. In fact, I think we have a picture of him. He had gained 60 pounds of wool. It was enough wool to make 20 large men's suits. By large men's suits, they're referring to guys my size. Large, full men's suits from this sheep. By trying to avoid being sheared, this sheep, Shrek the sheep, faced many different problems, including overheating, dehydration, as well as just physical issues of being away from the shepherd. Actually, the wool and how much he had gained protected him from different predators. So in that sense, it was a good thing, but it did not improve his quality of life. The shepherd eventually found his sheep. He probably saw a giant hairball running around somewhere and he was sheared and it was all over the news during that time. Shepherds take care of their sheep. And a shepherd knows his sheep. The person who was the shepherd of that area knew that was Shrek when he found him and could probably guess that he'd put on all that wool during that time. If you know anything about sheep, you know that they're not intelligent animals. I can barely train dogs. I don't think I could ever train a sheep to do anything. And sheep need encouragement. They need guidance and sometimes they need direction. So I was studying this week and first reading through the passage, I'll admit I didn't know quite where I was going to go. We see Paul traveling around a lot. In fact, we'll use our maps a lot today as we see Paul's ministry in Asia Minor and in Macedonia and in Achaia. We see him on the move. And as I, when I first read this, I thought, what does God have for us in this sermon? Why is this passage in Acts besides just to transition us to Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, which will be next week's sermon? And as I thought about it, I realized that we're seeing aspects of Paul's shepherding ministry in all of Acts 20. When we get into next week's sermon, Acts 20, 17 through 38, we see Paul's goodbye, his message to the Ephesian elders. And there's a lot of shepherding language that he is going to use in that sermon that he's going to give to them about how they should pay careful attention to the flock, how they should watch out for wolves. And so we see in that sermon, Paul's instruction to shepherds on how to be a shepherd. But I think as we look at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 20, we see an example of Paul's shepherding ministry. We see Paul, who was pastoring, who was discipling, who was shepherding people all across Macedonia and Asia Minor and Achaia. And we get a clear picture of what a shepherding ministry looked like. Shepherds feed their sheep, protect their sheep, guide their sheep, and as we're told in John 10, they even lay down their life for their sheep. Shepherding, as I will describe it today, is not caring for physical sheep, but instead we can use it to describe a pastor's care for his congregation. When I was in college studying to be a pastor, my pastoral studies professor told me there are three primary functions of a pastor. He ministers the word. He teaches, preaches. He gives people the word in public settings like this and in private settings. He shepherds the flock. He cares for the sheep. He guides the sheep. He protects the sheep. Sometimes he even corrects the sheep. 
And then he leads the body as well. So as we think about shepherding, it's something that pastors do for a congregation. We're also told that it's something that God does as well. In 1 Peter 5, the pastors are exhorted to shepherd the flock of God under the direction of the chief shepherd, who is Jesus Christ. It is his church. He is the head of the church. But even as believers, there are different ways that we can shepherd and guide one another in our daily lives. And we need all three levels of this shepherding. Our world, and especially our churches, need godly shepherding. There's so much access to preaching now. Have you noticed that? There's so many different places you can listen to preaching and good preaching on the internet, on podcasts. And I love listening to different preachers give sermons. I love Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, all these different men who are great preachers. Let me tell you something. They can be a great preacher. There are so many people you can listen to that are probably better speakers than I am. But they are not the pastor of your church. And ultimately, they don't give account to you before God when they stand before him. They give an account for those people in those churches. So we need godly shepherding. We need godly shepherding in local churches. Christians need to embrace the shepherding that comes from being in a local church. One of the things I fear for Christians today is that there's so many people who will try to do the Christian life on their own. They say, I can listen to a sermon here online. I can talk to these people, but I can never be part of a church. Or maybe they can be in a church, but they're never known by a church. They're never shepherded or discipled by someone. I believe it's God's design for believers today to be in a local church to be cared for by pastors and elders and other congregation members for the glory of God. There are those who are out there that are great preachers, good writers. They have big ministries. But unless you're part of their church, they do not give an account for your soul. So we need faithful shepherding in order to grow and be transformed into the image of of Christ. And that's what I want us to see this morning. That's our main idea is that the body of Christ needs faithful shepherding. And in turn, we should faithfully shepherd one another. And so I want to look today at four aspects of Paul's shepherding ministry. How did he do this? What were things that Paul did as an example, even for us to follow today? And in verses one through three, we start by seeing that Paul gave encouragements. Encouragement was the first mark of Paul's shepherding ministry as we see it in Acts 20. Look with me at verse 1. It says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. What's this uproar that Luke is talking about in verse 1? Well, if you remember last week, the whole city of Ephesus, where Paul was in, they were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! In fact, every time that someone tried to calm them down, whether it was Alexander or someone else, they started shouting it louder and louder until finally someone had to come in and get them under control. So this was an uproar. This was chaos in the city of Ephesus. After all of this calms down, it says that Paul sent for the disciples. Who are the disciples? These were the Christians in Ephesus. But notice it doesn't say the elders in Ephesus. Paul's going to talk to them later. These were the members of the churches that Paul had planted in the city of Ephesus. Paul wants to see them one more time. And look at what he does. It says, and after encouraging them, he said farewell. 
Look at that word encouraging. It comes from the Greek word parakaleo, which means to urge strongly, to appeal, to exhort, to encourage. What I love about this word is there's so many different aspects to how it can be used. It can be used positively to encourage someone, to compliment them, to try to keep them going. It can also be used to confront someone, to urge them to do something. You can encourage someone to get off the couch and get a job and to do something with their life. So there's different aspects of this word encouragement here. And we see that this is what Paul was doing for these Ephesians and that who are believers in Ephesus. Some of the believers there needed encouragement. They'd been doing what was right. They needed exhorted to keep doing that more. Some of them needed confronted. They needed to be urged to continue to live for Christ. So there's different aspects of this word encouragement here. And this is what Paul did to the Ephesian believers. So he does this. Then he says farewell. He's leaving the city of Ephesus. Then it says he departed for Macedonia. I think we can access the map of Paul's third missionary journey. So he's in Ephesus, which is in the red continent on the map, Asia Minor. He then goes up into Macedonia. There's a couple of main cities that Paul wants to see there. Philippi, which is where the Philippian jailer was converted. There was a demon-possessed woman that was the demon was cast out of. And then there was Lydia, the seller of purple. He's going to go back there and encourage believers. There's Thessalonica, which was also another important city. These are also books in the New Testament, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians. Remember, Paul was ran out of Thessalonica, if I can say that right, after there was a great persecution there. So Paul goes into Macedonia. There was also Berea there as well. And he encourages the believers there. Look at verse 2. It says, When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, so he'd given the Ephesians encouragement, to the Macedonians he gives much encouragement. He continues to do these things. He'd not been around them, so he continues to encourage them and urge them to keep going. It says that he came to Greece. Now, Greece is that bottom green uh, Region. I think I said continent earlier. It's not a continent. Region called Achaia. That's actually Greece. And there was Athens and Corinth. And we think that Paul spent most of his time there in Corinth. Why did he spend all of his time in Corinth? If you've read the book of First and Second Corinthians, you'll know why. They had a lot of issues in that church. And so Paul stays there for three months after being in Macedonia. And he's trying to encourage the different churches there. One of the things I love about Paul's ministry is that he doesn't leave believers on an island. He goes to a city. He shares the gospel with people. People are saved. They're encouraged. They're grown in Christ. He plants a church there. But sometimes people will do this. They'll plant a church and then they'll just go away to never encourage the church again. Paul doesn't do this often in Acts. We see him go back, check on them, encourage them he writes to them, which comprises a lot of the New Testament, and continues to encourage them again. And so this is what Paul does. He goes to Corinth. We can imagine he gives them more encouragement. He's addressing a lot of the issues that we see in 2 Corinthians, which was written around this time. And then there's a threat on his life. Look at verse 3. It says, There he spent three months, and when a plot was made by, against him by the Jews... 
as he was about to set sail for Syria, he returned to Macedonia. So the Jews are trying to run him out of Corinth. So then Paul goes back to Macedonia, which you can see at the top of the screen. So we see Paul traveling around. He's encouraging these different believers, helping them grow in Christ, helping these churches get established. And sometimes we have a twisted idea of encouragement that it's always just telling people how great they are and complimenting them and never telling them what they want to hear. When I was in junior high, I played basketball. And I had a coach that was very encouraging in that way. He always told me how great of a basketball player I was. The problem is I was always on the end of the bench and I never got to go into the game and actually play. So I'd ask the coach, I said, hey, is there anything I can do to get better? That He said, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. But I never got to play in the games. So then we got a new coach the next year, and he said, well, your jump shot doesn't really have great form, and you dribble the ball off your foot, and you've got these different issues. And he encouraged me to get better. It wasn't that he wasn't encouraging me. He was helping me get better and improve in basketball. And we can have this idea of encouragement as well. It is building others up, yes, but sometimes we need to tell others what they need to do in order to grow in Christ. This is what Paul does during this time. How do you encourage others? Do you give people false hope that they're actually doing everything right when really they're doing everything wrong? This word parakaleo in Greek has many different functions of how it encourages people to live, both positively and both in a constructive way to help others build up. Some people give false hope and encouragement, and they never tell people what they need to hear. And then some are the opposite. Some tell people everything they need to hear, but they don't do it with grace. As Christians, we should take the time to encourage others. Sometimes we take the, for granted the fact that there are other people in our churches that need to be encouraged. Part of being in a church family that shepherds one another is that we build one another up. Like a shepherd, he will positively encourage the sheep in his congregation, and we can do that as well. We see this was what Paul spent time doing as he's in verses 1 through 3, as he's traveling around. He's trying to encourage these believers. And why is Paul doing this? As we read back in Acts 19, Paul has a plan to not only go through Macedonia, but eventually back to Syria and back to Jerusalem, where he would celebrate Pentecost and eventually be arrested. So this was part of Paul's plan. He didn't know he would be arrested necessarily, but he's planning on going back to Jerusalem and he wants to encourage these believers. He makes it his mission. He dedicates a good amount of time to doing this. The Corinthians needed a lot of encouragement, needed a lot of correction, so he gave them more time. He spent a good amount of time there. Do you encourage one another in your church, other people who are believers in Jesus Christ? Ask yourself this question. Do I respond well to encouragement? Do I respond well when people speak into my life? Have you ever met anyone that you just can't encourage? They're always down. You can't say anything to them that can lift their spirits. They're kind of stuck in this self-pity. Those people can be so frustrating to try to build up and encourage. Do you respond well to encouragement? We see that Paul not only encouraged others, but he also discipled others. Let's look at Paul's discipleship in verses 4 through 6. Now, As we look at verse 4, we get a long list of names there that 
Tim read for us, and I apologize for that, Tim. There's a lot of difficult names there in verse 4. First of all, Sopter the Berean, son of Phyrus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychus and Trophimus. So why do we have these men listed here? What are they doing? Well, we know they're all friends of Paul. Some of them we've seen in different parts of the letters. If you read the New Testament letters, at the end, usually he'll send greetings from different people. He'll talk about some of these men that are listed here. We've seen some of them in Acts. So Timothy is mentioned a lot in Acts. He's mentioned a lot in the New Testament. He was Paul's probably closest disciple, his protege. There's two books in the New Testament written to Timothy. Aristarchus was mentioned in Acts 19. He's one of Paul's companions that they, when they were, the city was rioting, they took him and they brought him to the theater and probably beat him up a little bit. There's other people here. Gaius of Derby was also mentioned in Acts 19. So why are these men mentioned? And at first glance, we can just pass over this and be thankful we didn't have to read those out loud. So why are these people here? Notice how they all come from different regions. And how Luke mentions that. He says Sopter was a Berean. And it says there were two people that came, or one person that comes from the Thessalonians. And Gaius comes from Derby. Timothy, Timothy, we know, grew up in Lystra. And then the Asians, that would be Asia Minor, Ephesus area. There's Tychus and Trophimus. It's showing the different regions of Paul's ministry. It shows us the outlook and how Paul had impacted these different regions of Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor. So it shows us his impact. It also shows us that these men were traveling with Paul for a specific purpose. We don't see it here, but if you turn to Romans chapter 15, so right after the book of Acts, go to Romans 15 for just a moment. Paul comments on this journey himself. Look with me at verse 22. Part of Paul's plan that we see in Acts 19 is that he'd go to Macedonia, he'd go to Jerusalem, and eventually he'd go to Rome. He always wanted to get to Rome. He eventually does get to Rome later. In verse 22, it says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he says, I've been working in these regions. Paul is writing this around the time of Acts 20. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's doing work in Macedonia, Asia, Achaia. And he says, I want to go to Rome. In fact, he wants to go past Rome. He wants to go to Spain as well. Verse 25. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem. And look at what he says. To bring aid to the saints. Paul was taking up an offering, a collection of money from these different regions to bring to Jerusalem. Now, what was this offering? We're not quite sure. It may have been to help poor Christians there. There were many famines during this time, so it might have been to help Christians who were hungry, who needed food. But Paul is taking this offering, and it comes from these different regions. In fact, each region that Paul had ministered in sends someone who's like a messenger with Paul to go to Jerusalem to bring this offering there. 
You had someone from Ephesus. You had two people from Ephesus. Someone from Thessalonica. Someone, a couple people from Galatia. Someone from Berea. Now you might ask, where is Philippi? We'll get to that in a moment. And where is Corinth? I think Paul probably took the offering from Corinth. Look at why he does this. Verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. What Paul is saying is, the church in Jerusalem sent people to the Gentiles. They invested in those areas, all those regions, to help them receive the gospel. And now they are helping the church in Jerusalem, who is struggling financially. So I think in part, part of Paul's trip was to go back and bring the church in Jerusalem money from these different regions, and each city sent a messenger. Now, there's one city that's been left out, and it's the city of Philippi. You might ask, well, who went from Philippi? Look with me at verse 5. These went on ahead and were waiting for us. It changes there. It doesn't say they were waiting for Paul. It says they're waiting for us. Why did they use a first-person pronoun there? Keep reading. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So he starts, Luke, who's the writer, starts using first-person pronouns because he's now back with Paul. Paul had gone to Philippi. This is where he meets with some of these men. And Luke is there waiting for him. So I think Luke was a representative from Philippi. Now we're going to start seeing Luke write in the first person because he was there. He traveled with Paul. He went with him on some of his journeys, and he's going to go on this one as well. They celebrate this feast of the unleavened bread there, and it says, And in five days we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. We see the scope of Paul's discipleship ministry, how he ministers in all of these different regions. And he doesn't just share the gospel with these men and say goodbye, but he invests in them. All the men mentioned in verse 4 were people that Paul had spent a significant amount of time investing in, helping understand doctrine, theology, God's word, and how to share it with other people. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a moment. We see here an example of Paul's discipleship ministry. Timothy was one of Paul's protégés. He was his closest disciple, as I said. What did Paul's discipleship ministry look like in Timothy's life? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul's saying, I've shared the gospel with you. You've heard this. There's been people who have watched you accept the gospel and live the gospel out in your life. Take this to other men. So that they can receive the gospel, be saved, disciple to the point where they can do what? Teach others also. Paul didn't just stop at salvation. He helped train people to continue to teach God's word to others. When Paul writes the book of 2 Timothy, he's in prison again. And if you read the book of 2 Timothy, it has a dark tone to it. It's because Paul knows he's about to die. This would ensure the further proclamation and spread of the gospel. Timothy would share the gospel with other people. 
who would share the gospel with other people, and it would go on until even today, where we have churches and we have people preaching God's word, sharing the gospel because of what Paul did in the book of Acts, because of what he did with Timothy. So we see Paul's discipleship ministry here. He invests in many different people for many different periods of time, and he trains them on how they can teach others also. Now, if you read the book of 2 Timothy, you realize that he's telling Timothy to guard the gospel, especially from false teaching. Part of why Paul disciples Timothy and puts so much time into these relationships is because he didn't want anyone else to do it. Have you ever gotten bad advice from someone? I can remember working at the golf course and the owner had a certain way that everything was to be done. A certain way you cut the grass, a certain way you would trim around the edges of things, a certain way you rake the the sand trap. And sometimes when he would be gone, his son would be working and he'd say, oh, you don't have to do it that way. That's just what my dad says. You don't need to do it exactly like he said. And so one day I was foolish enough to listen to him and I didn't do everything like the owner said. So he came over and he looked at my work and he said, why did you do this this way? I said, well, your son said this was okay. He said, well, why would you listen to him? I gave you specific instructions for what you are to do. And so I learned from that day, if it comes from his mouth, I do it exactly the way that he said to do it. Do you disciple others? Do you take opportunity to teach other people? We do this to share the gospel with others. But also think about this. We do this so that other people don't do it as well. Do you realize this morning that if you don't disciple your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, people you know, that other people will do it for you. And they may not be the people you want to be doing it. The world would love an opportunity to share their influence and their philosophy on how life should work. There are many different places who would love the opportunity to teach your children and grandchildren and people you know how they should live their life. There are plenty of different philosophies on life, on the internet, ways you should live, how you should do this, 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 and this. They will disciple those people for you. If you don't disciple the next generation, someone else will. Think about this. It may not even be the world. It could be people who call themselves Christians, but they really aren't. Like John said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. And they promote this false Christianity and this false doctrine. I'm not trying to scare us this morning, but I'm trying to show us the reality of the situation. As Paul continues in his ministry, there were people who were spreading a false gospel, false theology, things that would influence people negatively. And so you start seeing Paul disciple people with more fervency, trying to steer them towards truth. We said this in Thursday Bible study when we were studying Revelation. A lot of the later books that are written later on in the first century talk about false teaching so much because it was becoming more prevalent. There are so many different false gospels that people can ascribe to today. So you take the time to instruct people, to disciple people, to teach them the true gospel, to minister in their life. Paul's shepherding involved encouragement. It involved discipleship. And thirdly, we see that it involves instruction. Instruction. Look with me at verses 7 through 12 of Acts 20. 
On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech till midnight. So now Paul is in Troas. He's there with these men. They're talking. And from what we know in other parts of Scripture, they share the gospel, and there seems to be some people there that are part of a church. And Paul starts addressing with them. It says that they met on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. A lot of people think Paul is trying to show that the Lord's Day is on Sunday now. and This might be a hint towards that. I think it does show that they were starting to meet at least on Sunday. We see that Paul's talking with them, and it says he's intending to depart the next day. He knows he can't stay in that city long. So it says he prolonged his speech until... Midnight. Now, I don't think this means that Paul spoke from 9 a.m. to midnight, but with people and that were part of the church, especially slaves and maybe craftsmen, they may not have gotten off work until late and then they had to eat. So it says that Paul prolonged his speech till midnight. He may not have started preaching until the evening. So Luke is setting the stage for what is about to happen. These people are tired. Paul is still wanting to give them instruction. Look at verse 8. It says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. When I first read that, I thought, why does Luke say this? Why do we need to know that there were many lamps? I think it shows us that it was dark and that they needed lamps in order to see it. Again, sets the tone for what is about to happen. Look at verse 9. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked longer. If you look at other people who have preached this passage, a lot of them will use the title, Don't Fall Asleep in Church, because of what's about to happen. So this young man, we don't know who he was. We are told that he's young. He could have been between the ages of 8 to 14. He also could have been a slave. That word young could refer to slave as well. Whatever the case, we can assume maybe that he had a long day's work, and that's why he's tired. It's late. He's trying to listen. And he's sitting in a window on the third story of this Roman house. Now, if this house had three stories, this was a pretty wealthy man who owned this house. I don't know why this boy chose to sit in the window, but he did. And he starts nodding off during Paul's sermon. And no one does that here when I'm preaching. But he starts nodding off during Paul's sermon. And eventually it says he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. So Paul kept preaching well past what we can assume is midnight. And it says, being overcome by sleep, he fell down the third story and was taken up dead. So he falls out of the window, he falls three stories down to the ground, and he dies. Some people think he appeared dead. I think he was probably actually dead. So he falls asleep in church. Because of that, he falls out of the window and dies. Now, if you're going to fall asleep in church, don't sit in the window. That might be one thing we can take from this passage. When I was in college, we had some professors that were harder to stay awake. It was harder to stay awake during their class, especially if they had a soothing voice. Some of them had these deep, soothing voices that kind of just made you start to fall asleep. Some classes at Faith started at seven in the morning. So you would obviously be awake late at night. You'd have class at seven and you're trying to stay awake. The worst ones were after lunch. Right after you've eaten and you're full and you still have one more class before you're done, you have a professor that had a soothing voice, you just start to fall asleep. Now, I actually had trouble falling asleep in class. There were some classes that I kind of wish I could have maybe nodded off, but I just, for whatever reason, couldn't. But my friend and I would watch people as they would fall asleep. And there was this girl 
She would try so hard to stay awake, but she would still just nod off during class to the point where one day she fell out of her chair onto the ground. She was even snoring while she was doing it, and she was in deep sleep. It eventually just fell out of her chair. That woke her up and the rest of the class up, and they continued on. So this boy, he falls asleep while Paul is preaching. And look at what Paul does in verse 10. It says, But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for life is in him. Now some people say maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe Paul's saying that he still was alive. The Jews didn't believe that your soul left the body until three days after you had died. And so Paul is saying that this boy won't stay dead, at least whatever you believe about whether he was dead or not dead. We can assume that he resurrects him back to life. But what's so interesting to me about what Paul does is in verse 11, they don't talk about the boy. You're kind of waiting to see, okay, is he alive? Is he going to make it? And look at verse 11. It says, And when Paul had gone up, he had broken bread and eaten and conversed with them for a long while until daybreak when he departed. And you think, what happened to the boy? Is he alive? Is he going to make it? But that's not what Luke's focus is. This is something that happened while Paul was giving instruction. What does Luke go back to? Paul's teaching ministry. How Paul spent many hours well into the nights, all night until morning, trying to give these people instruction. Paul had a long journey ahead of him the next day. We're going to see that in the final few verses of this sermon. But he still took the time to stay up and give these people the instruction that they needed. The city of Troas had not been evangelized much by Paul. He would not spent too much time there. And I think as Paul went there, he thought these people need more teaching. And so he gives that to them pretty much all night. Look at verse 12. And they took the youth away alive. So there it is. He's, he's alive. He made it. And it says they were not a little comforted. So they received much encouragement from this. This was Paul's instruction ministry. He gives these people instruction. He takes the time to place an emphasis on teaching them what they need to know. And why does he do that? Like I said in the last point, if he doesn't give them instruction, other people will. Have you ever noticed that in life, there's no shortage of people who will tell you what to do, who will tell you how you should do things. If Paul didn't give them instruction, other people would. And so Paul gives them instruction just as a way of application from this. Do you listen to biblical teaching? Do you pay attention to what is being taught? Do you value it? Do you take the time to teach others as well and shepherd them in that way? The final aspect of Paul's shepherding ministry that I want us to see is submission. Paul, as a shepherd, as he takes time to shepherd others, submits himself to the chief shepherd. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. But going ahead to the ship, we sailed for Asos, and intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. So as we see back on the map, Paul is trying to go to Asos. He called his companions to travel the next day. This city was 20 miles from Troas. It was a port city, and about a day's journey 
Paul goes by land. Why does he do this? Why does he go by land and not by boat? Some people think there could have been a security threat to his life. I actually think it was shorter to go by land for Paul, and he wanted to spend more time in Troas. And so he stays in that city, then goes to this next city of Assos. It was about a day's journey. It was Paul's shortcut to try to get there. And it said, And when he met us in Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. So Paul goes to another city from there. This was the main city on the island of Lesbos. It was about 44 miles from Assos. Now, we're not told too much about any of these cities that he stops in. He's really just trying to travel to get to Syria and Jerusalem at this point. Let's keep reading. It says in in verse 15, And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite of Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after we went to Miletus. So three different cities are mentioned. Uh, the city of, Metle- of Chios was opposite of Smyrna. They go from there to Smos. Uh, fun fact about Samos, that's where Pythagorean was from, the Pythag- or Pythagoria, the Pythagorean f- theorem, if you like math. And then after that, they go to Miletus. This was 30 miles south of Ephesus. We're not going to take the time and talk about, okay, why did he go to each city? Except if you look at the map, Paul is avoiding a certain city on his travels. If you notice that, he's trying to avoid Ephesus. Look at verse 16. Luke tells us as much. He says, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. He's taking a shortcut around Ephesus to get to Miletus. Now you ask yourself the question, why would he avoid Ephesus? He spent three years there. He knows so many people there. There's a ton of people who would love to see Paul and talk to him. And that is the point. If Paul went to Ephesus, he probably would have not been able to leave for a long time. There's so many people who would have talked to him. He would have wanted to give them more instruction. He had to sail past Ephesus. Look at the rest of that verse. It says he sails past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, before the day of Pentecost. Paul knew it was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem, to travel there, to take part in this, to get the money to that church. And while he wants to go to Ephesus, he wants to spend time in Ephesus, ministering to the people there, he had to bypass it. While his will was to go to that city, he knew it was the will of the Lord to sail past there and follow the will of God. Sometimes shortcuts don't always work out. My grandpa was the one who taught me how to drive. And one day there was some traffic on the main road and he said, I know a shortcut. And I'm convinced every man that's over 60, 70 years old has a shortcut for how to get to somewhere. And so he took me on this shortcut. He said it was right past Rosie's Tavern. I don't know why he knew where that was. But we went on this shortcut and it was the most windy road I've ever been on in the state of Illinois. Illinois is flat. There's really not a lot of hills. But they were all on this road that my grandpa took me on. And I was 16 at the time. I was just learning how to drive. And I'm weaving and going in and out. And we might have gotten there faster. That is not taking into account the stress that my grandpa put on me as a 16-year-old trying to navigate through this trail. Paul takes this shortcut, this path around Ephesus, because he's submitting to the will of the Father. And sometimes we must submit to the will of God in the same way. 
Part of shepherding means that we recognize that we're under the design and the will of the chief shepherd, that it's his church and not our own. So as we close this morning, how can we support healthy shepherding? How, is, how can we as believers support healthy shepherding from God, the chief shepherd, from our pastors and to each other? First of all, submit to God, the chief shepherd. Part of being a good Christian, part of being one of Christ's sheep, means that we submit ourselves to him. And we say it's not our way, but it is your way. There might be things we might like to do in life. There might be decisions we might like to make for ourselves. But we submit ourselves to the chief shepherd. If you know anything about sheep, they try to go their own way a lot. They think they know best. They think this is where I want to go. That's not where the shepherd has for them. And we know that the shepherd always knows best. So we can submit ourselves to God, who is the chief shepherd in our life. Secondly, encourage biblical eldership. Pastors, elders, they are here in the church to shepherd the flock of God. So we encourage that. We support them. We support not only me, but the other elders who are here in our church We encourage biblical eldership. And then lastly, shepherd others in your church. Take time to instruct, to disciple, to encourage others in our local church family. And not only in our church, but outside of our church as well, in our circle of influence, in our family, in our friends. Again, recognizing that if we don't shepherd them, other people will try to. As we close this morning, I'm reminded as I was thinking about this sermon of my pastor who I had for 14 to 15 years, who was a wonderful shepherd in my life. He taught me how to preach. He allowed me to preach at different points in the evening services at Calvary. But the moment that I remember the most from Pastor Scott was when my grandpa died. My grandpa died in a pretty tragic car accident, and I was a freshman in college. I can remember not really having a way to get back home for the funeral. And so my pastor drove to the college I was at, picked me up, drove me all the way back, and then did the funeral for my grandpa. And you know, my pastor preached hundreds of sermons when I was under his care. He had talked to me for countless hours. There's so much that I owe to him in my life because of his ministry But when I think about his shepherding impact in my life, there's not a moment that goes by where I don't think about that moment where he picked me up. He talked to me the whole way there. He helped me work through different emotions that I had, different questions that I had about why did this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? And then his ministry in my family's life on the day of the funeral. And so as I think about shepherding, And how pastors take care of their congregation, how God takes care of us. I'm reminded of his example of shepherding in my life. And when he did those things, he was not thinking of himself, but he was representing Christ, who is the good shepherd. And so let's seek to be that to others this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, who is the chief shepherd and how he impacts us in our lives. God, I thank you for so many pastors that I've had who have encouraged me, who have helped me to grow in Christ. Would you help us to do that for one another? Would you help me as the pastor and the other elders here to do that as well? 
As we go from this place, help us to encourage one another to take time to minister to each other's lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.